Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race Podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name is Paolo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone is doing well out there. We're a little bit more than a week and a half away from the nominations coming out for this year's Oscars, which, as always, is super exciting. Uh, I think of the most likely Best Picture contenders, the only one I'm missing out on is Licorice Pizza as well as Drive My Car. Uh, last week, I talked to my friend Alex how I hadn't yet seen Nightmare Alley, but since I got into a screening of it in black and white this past weekend, that's all up to one of my absolute favorites of this year's Bats for sure. Everything Alex said about the production and cinematography and just so much about it. This was well-crafted. Strongly recommend you check it out if you get a chance. I think it's going to be coming to Hulu and HBO Max, uh, I think February 1st. Um, so that should be uh, helpful for everyone waiting for that on the death race. Now, this week, we're going to be going through four more films that are most likely to be nominated for Best Picture, Belfast, uh, the aforementioned Licorice Pizza, King Richard, and Coda, uh, which I'm going to be calling the coming-of-age films this year, as all of those films ha- kind of have that common through-line to them. Uh, joining me this week are longtime friends of the show Jeff and Pierre of the Classic Movies Live podcast, as well as Kicking It with Kendrick. Um, I actually appeared on a soon-to-be-released episode of Kicking It with Kendrick, putting on my hat as the host of the Box Office Watch podcast talking about the movie The Accountant and giving them a box office 101 class course. Always a pleasure to have them on. Uh, Make sure you check out all of their stuff, which will be linked in the show notes below. Now, while we're talking about Friends of the Show, a reminder that if you're listening to this episode as it comes out, there are a couple more days left in the Academy of Death Racers Film Festival, which you should be sure to get onto that if you haven't yet. And while the festival may be coming to a close this weekend, the fun isn't stopping yet. Uh, With Oscar nominations less than two weeks away, I'm going to be actually opening up uh, a For Funsies Oscar nominations contest. No prizes or anything, you know, just for bragging rights, honestly. Um, You know, the idea is that while we see about 50 or so nominated films each year, uh, if you go by the number of categories multiplied by the number of nominees in each category, there are technically 120 nominations up for grabs, um, with obviously several films getting multiple nominations. Now, the way this contest works is going to be simple. In the show notes, as well as the in, in the Academy of Death Racers Discord and the Oscar Race and Oscars Death Race subreddit, there's going to be a Google form where you can fill out a ballot on who you think will be nominated for each category, totaling up to 120 possible nominations. Again, this is what you think will be nominated for February 8th, as opposed to what you want to be nominated for, very, for, for February 8th, two very different things in several cases. Now, whoever predicts the most correct nominees out of 120 possible possible will basically get bragging rights as the nomination to whisper for this year. Now ties, you know, if two, two people have the same score, ties will be broken by whoever makes their prediction first according to when Google uh, Seats logs your answer. Now the form is open currently and taking submissions and it will be open until the nominees are announced. Now I actually will be doing an episode next week with another friend of the show, Dakota from the Contra Zoom podcast, um, about what we think will be nominated and you know if you have need some help filling your predictions out. Um, also, you know, I'm going to include a page where people can list their 10 films that they do want to see nominated. So, you know, we can see what films uh, people want to see make it to the best picture and, and compare it to how the actual best picture nominees pan out in the end. That's all next week, though, and you know, if you need some insight about what Belfast, Licorice Pizza, King Richard, and Coda should be competitive for, then listen on for my conversation with Jeff and Pierre. One last reminder, we do go into spoiler territory in this conversation, so you have been warned. Alright, I'll catch you on the other side.
All right. And today we have our special guests, Jeff and Pierre from the Classic Movies Live podcast, among others. Uh, welcome back to the show, guys. You were here last season um, for the, I believe, the nomination, the, the, the winner predictions episode, I believe. Um, but this time we have you on for the best picture uh, likely uh, episode. So, you know, thanks again for coming on, guys. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves for the guests and tell us about, you know, Classic Movie Lives and all the other podcasts you work on. Uh, my name is Pierre. <laughs> And I am one of the co-hosts of Classic Movies Live, and I guess kicking it with Kendrick. Yeah, I'm I'm one of the other I'm the other co-host of Classic Movies Live, and currently kicking it with Kendrick, where we're going through all of Anna Kendrick's filmography. It's probably helpful for listeners uh, to know kind of what kind of movies I'm into. My favorite movies are Spider Man Two, uh, Redline, Parasite, and Requiem for a Dream which if you guys have seen all of those movies, you'll know that those movies are one, not subtle. Uh, two, they know exactly what they want to be and they go hard. Like Redline is a movie that's about racing and it is the wackiest, like most insane movie about racing that's maybe ever been made. Spider-Man 2 is like, it's directed by the king of camp, Sam Raimi. So like, these are movies that uh, go all out. So I really like it when my movies know exactly what they are and don't shy away from being bold, whatever that ends up meaning. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes it really does. Uh, That said, my favorite movie last year was Drive My Car, which is like the subtlest movie that's ever been made. So clearly uh, clearly the pendulum goes to both sides i don't know you hadn't asked about that yet paolo but i think that is useful information to have yeah that is good i was gonna ask that next thing uh pierre what about you what are your favorite movies just so you know listeners can get a sense of uh what what kind of films you're into uh i'm just like a big i, I love i'll always love blockbuster movies I, I i don't know why necessarily like i i love a lot of the more artistic movies too but for some reason, nothing gets me going like watching a really good blockbuster in theaters. Um, so yeah, just like you know, a lot. I grew up with superhero movies and stuff, so a lot of those. Um, but I do like the like Christopher Nolan is what really got me into movies after watching The Dark Knight um, and like looking at his at his filmography and stuff. Like Jeff and I, kind of like we both really like to to find movies that are very different. Like we'll uh, at least like I'll respect a movie even if I don't even if I don't like it. Um, just for like the risks risks it's trying to take and how it's like trying to uh, do something new and push movies forward. Um, I think Jeff's much better at liking the differences though, whereas I can mostly just appreciate it um, and won't necessarily uh, want to watch it again. One episode that I'm really proud of that uh, we recorded a long time ago and it went up back when our uh, show was on SoundCloud and it'll go back up on Spotify just once its time is up. Uh, we did an episode that I think was two hours long on the movie Armageddon by Michael Bay. And like, it's two hours long. So we had a lot to say. I think I had three pages of notes on that movie. It's, I like that movie a lot, even though I think the consensus on that movie is not that it's necessarily that good. But like me and Pierre both, well, I really liked it. And I think at least Pierre was able to like really appreciate a lot of the aspects of it, even though it was super corny and, in most ways, not actually very good. There's just a lot of interesting artistic merit to it. It's one way to describe it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely a way to describe it. Uh, and then obviously, you know, you guys are here on the Oscars Death Race podcast and you've been on here before. So, you know, you guys obviously know what the Oscars Death Race is. How long have you been into doing like the, the Death Race or at least attempting the Death Race? 
Uh, I've only been into it for the past, well, ever since Jeff got me into it. So, like, basically, like, two years, two years, maybe three years. I think I tried, like, maybe in, like, 2014, I watched all the nominees once, at least for best, like, picture. So that was, like, kind of, like, a mini death race. But, like, I'm, yeah, and I still haven't, com- but I still haven't completed, like, the full, the full marathon yet, which I hope to do. Actually, I probably won't be able to do it this year, but next year for sure. <laughs> I'm, like pre pre uh non-committing myself to this year all right and then jeff you on the other hand i think are almost done with the potential death race even before the nominees have come out there's a very good chance that the nominees will come out this year and i am done it's not a hundred percent and right now i'm missing a lot in documentary especially but like there's a good chance but yeah i've uh i've been actively doing it for i think excluding this year the last two years so back since the parasite year and then before that uh probably going back even five years i was like always trying to watch all the best picture nominees and then i branched out to like all the nominees and above the line categories and then i was like well i really like the animated movies and i really like the international so i want to do those too and eventually it just sort of came to well why don't i just watch everything all right. So, Jeff, you know, since you are uh, almost done potentially with the death race, what are your thoughts on this year's race uh, so far in terms of just like the films that are coming out? Um, it's fine. I think that like there's a lot of really good movies this year. Um, I don't think this year is as strong as like maybe last year or obviously the year before when Parasite came out. Like there's nothing that like is quite that high for me. But at the same time, um, I guess the, the the only thing I'm worried about in this year's death race, and we don't have the nominations, obviously, so that's going to affect things. But uh, there's a lot of movies that aren't really, there's a lot of movies that I think are really good that aren't really getting a lot of, aren't getting the awards attention that I wish they were. Like even Drive My Car, which is currently on Gold Derby, if I, I, I only know this from listening to you, but on Gold Derby, I think it's like, almost in the top 10 or like it might be number 10 in I think it's like number 12 I think right now okay number 12 so it's really high so that means it's already getting awards attention and like that may even mean that it's likely to win international I think it should be on there for like more things drive my car is incredible and personally I would like nominate it for just about anything everything also it seems like Nightmare Alley is really falling off which is really sad to hear because I loved that movie a lot. And uh, same with A Hero. Like, not that A, he- a Hero is definitely, go- almost certainly going to be nominated for Best International, but like, that's another one where I think it could be a real contender in almost everything. Yeah, I mean, that's just the Oscars are going to Oscar at this point. And, uh, I mean, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, anyway, for this episode, you know, like like we've been for the past couple of episodes, just going through the best picture likely nominees according to Gold Derby's um, top 12, you know, excluding Vive My Car because I didn't really have a way to watch that quite yet. So swapped and lost that lost daughter a couple of weeks ago. Um, but, you know, this week we're wrapping up with the final four, um, which, you know, I kind of, when I was putting the episodes together, realized, hey, these all kind of have like a coming of age type thing, which, you know, I, I feel probably is like a, somewhat 
recurring theme motif with among Oscar nominees to some degree, um, and definitely across movie as like a universal theme for sure. Um, so you know, these are Belfast uh, by Kenneth Branagh, um, uh, uh, Licorice Pizza by Paul Thomas Anderson, King Richard, uh, starring Will Smith, uh, and then Coda, which was a, a fan favorite at a, at Sundance um, last year. Which this week I think we're recording is actually Sundance twenty twenty two, so it's been a year since Coda came out. Um, so we'll just go through all of these. And again, reminder once again that we will be going into spoiler territory. Um, I don't think – I haven't seen uh, all of these. I, I'm missing Liquid's Pizza. Um, Pierre, I think you might be missing a couple of these too, but we'll just cover for each other uh, and lean on Jeff for those uh, to, to carry us through. Um, so, you know, starting off, we'll go kind of like work our way down the list uh, of those that are, of the ones that are – uh, by Best Picture ranking on Gold Derby. And first up, we have Belfast. Um, this is a semi-autobiographical uh, story shot in black and white um, by director Kenneth Branagh about growing up in Northern Ireland during the 1960s, uh, colloquially known as The Troubles. Um, it stars child actor Jude Hill in his feature film debut as nine-year-old buddy um, with Catriona Balfe as his mother, Janie, uh, Jamie Dornan as his father, the peerless Judy Dench as his grandmother, uh, Karen Hines as his f- grandfather, and then Colin Morgan as his brother. Uh, it debuted at the 48th Telluride Film Festival last year, won the People's Choice Award at Toronto International Film Festival, debuted in the U.S. November 12th last year, and released in the U.K. and Ireland this past week, actually. Um, it's currently available on VOD. Uh, currently on Letterboxd, it has a score of 3.5 out of, out of 4, 000, uh, 40,000 viewers. Rotten Tomatoes has an 87% critics and 91% audience. According to Gold Derby. It is currently up for uh, second for Best Picture, third for Best Director, Kenneth Branagh, uh, third for Best Supporting Actress, Catriona Balfe, uh, two Supporting Actor potential nominations, third for The Grandfather, Karen Hines, and fifth for Jamie Dornan, The Father. Uh, original Screenplay is currently at second, fifth for Cinematography, second for Editing, seventh for, for Production Design, fifth for down to, for Beth Original Song, Down to Joy by Van Morrison, and currently fourth for Best Sound. Um, so, Jeff, I know you've seen this. Pierre, have you seen Belfast? Yes, I have. All right. Uh, so I'll start with you then. What are your thoughts on Belfast overall? Um, it's a it's a pretty solid movie, I guess. Like, uh, I, it's definitely a movie that I feel was carried in some ways by a, a, a few a few select performances that I really liked. Um, specifically, like the grandparents. I'm sorry, I can't remember. It was, it was uh, Karen Hines, Hines and, and Judy, Judy then. Yeah, Dent, Judy then. Yeah, okay. Um, I really I love them in the movie. Um, and I think they really brought like uh, uh, it, it's it's weird to say, but like I think they're very charismatic, but in a way that really grounded the movie, if that makes sense. Like they just felt like the most relatable characters to me. But yeah, it, I, I guess it was just like an interesting take on a a, a per- time period that I wasn't really aware of, so that was really cool. Yeah, but I, I didn't think it was anything really groundbreaking or anything that um, uh, I I would like personally want to revisit or really wowed me in any way. Okay. Uh, what about you, Jeff? What were your thoughts on Belfast? Um, I really liked it. I think on our episode about it, I gave it uh, what I like to call a week seven, which is it was pretty good, but like, um, you know, not necessarily outstanding. Uh, but with the caveat that I would definitely watch this again. And I almost cer- I've seen it twice now and I'm certainly going to see it again. I just don't know when yet. Uh, I think that this is... Um, this is a really nice kind of, 
I say this in the loving, lovingest possible way, meandery movie. Like, not that much happens. It's more of like a, like a vibes movie than it is much of a story. And uh, I think that the screenplay goes a long way to really making that work. Because despite this being in a set in a very tumultuous time during uh, in Northern Irish history, and um, ultimately having kind of a bittersweet ending, it's uh, a it's like a really feel good movie at the same time. I think it's um, it's really cool how Brana was able to balance those things, and I think that like this movie sets out to achieve something and it does that really well. I think this is just a really solid movie. Okay. I, I don't know. I have mixed. So uh, it's funny you speak about the screenplay because I don't know how I feel about the screenplay, right? I feel like it could have, I think if they're like, you know, uh, there could have been a couple of directions it could have taken. I think that would have made me like it a little bit more. So, like, you know, obviously it's from the perspective of Buddy, um, which, you know, I mean, credit to Jude Hill, right? The actor who plays him. He's like a nine-year-old kid at, right, at the time. Um, you know, for his debut film, I think he did a pretty solid job as like a child actor um, for all that. But, you know, that being said, right? Like, you know, it is autobiographical. I was actually walking my dog today, listened to the Director's Cut podcast from the Director's Guild Award where they interviewed him about, you know, which elements of the film were, were like from your childhood. And apparently the two like kind of central things from his memory that were based on reality were the opening scene where like the mob comes to his street uh, and he kind of sees the mob and all the ruckus. Um, and then the other part that apparently was real was later in the film when his mother, during a rioting, takes him back to a grocery store to return uh, the, the washing detergent. Apparently that actually happened in his childhood. Um, so I think, you know, those were definitely some pretty stellar moments. And, and you can tell that those came from like an authentic place. I think what didn't quite work for me in the screenplay is that like, you know, it's, from the perspective of Buddy, but I think they injected like a little like if it, if you go like you know how you mentioned earlier, Jeff, that like you like films that know what they're doing and they go for it. I think they tried to, to just straddle it a little bit too much, where like it tried to do okay. Here's Buddy's perspective of growing up in Belfast, um, and you kind of having this affection for it from like a, kind of like a childlike perspective on all the kind of background events happening of the troubles, like not really knowing what was going on, but kind of having an idea. Um, but then there was also this, like adult drama of his parents trying to raise the kids, his father working in England, and kind of like that that struggle of like, are we going to stay here or are we going to essentially relocate to England for our family's future, basically, right? And I think it tried to do both of those, but it was like it didn't really commit to either one, right? Which I think wasn't quite as which made it a little bit weaker for me to some degree um i don't know if that's just like me not getting it but that 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 was kind of like my takeaway like if it had leaned a little bit more in one direction or the other i think it would have been the i would have enjoyed it a little bit more yeah um i can see that although if it had leaned more in one direction or the other i definitely don't think it should have leaned more on the parent drama because mm, yeah you know the the troubles being a bad a generally bad time Cool. We know that. Anyone who knows what the Troubles are about knows that. And that's not what this movie is about. This movie is about a kid growing right, up in exactly. Belfast. And I think that's the much stronger aspect. Yeah. And then I think I think like one thing I wish they had done a little bit more of was that, you know, there was like, you know, the mom, Catriona Balfe, who, again, is also a stellar performance here. Uh, I think she, she definitely does this sort of like a supporting actress nomination here. Um, you know, I think 
when she kind of like says like her reluctance to leave is that we know everyone on the street, you know, we sound like, you know, like we're going to sound different if we move to England, like we're going to be all alone. You know, we can let our kids play because they know that they kind of alluded to that in like the opening scene where like the kids were like running around a little bit, but, and like the block parties um, that they kind of had, but it felt like really, uh, it felt really like limited in scope where you didn't really get a true sense that like, you know, this is like really this affection that they had for the city of Belfast, basically. Like you don't really, you don't really get any of the, the before you just start off with the kind of the troubles basically. And you, I didn't really get that sense of the, this is why they're so attached to the, you know, the beauty and, and the charm of the city basically. So you're saying like you would have preferred more contrast like before. After. Maybe a little bit. I think, but again, that's, that's just me. Um, so one question I had for you guys is, you know, obviously one of the stat- defining features of this film is that it is in black and white, um, aside from a couple shots at the beginning and the end, like showing modern day Belfast in color. And then some sequences when they go to the movies where, you know, what's on screen is kind of, uh, is kind of mass and it has the color. Everything else is in black and white. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a reason for that, you know, which he kind of talked about in that BGA interview, which I listened to, which I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit, but what were your takes on it being in black and white and, and, and did that particularly work for you? I liked it. I think it was a little like on the nose, the whole, oh, movies are in color, but everything else is black and white. Like it, it felt a little obvious, like what he was trying to do there, but I still appreciated it. I liked it because I know this is like a semi autobiographical and I like, like it feels like Kenneth Branagh's like uh, displaying his like childhood through like home video, if that makes sense in a way, like because through black and white, like his memories, if that makes sense. So I think that adds to it. Um, I don't know whether like you should like judge it based on knowing that or whatever, because I think not knowing who Kenneth Branagh is kind of, uh, would make that more pointless, but uh, I guess I really appreciate the black and white, and I think it adds like a certain aesthetic to it. It was nice. Yeah, I basically agree with Pierre here. I don't think it's as well. I mean, I come from this the same as Pierre, knowing who Kenneth Branagh is coming into this, and I think that like that does make it very obvious what he's doing with the black and white versus the color. Uh, for me, it really works. I would be really interested in knowing like what maybe my sister thinks about this movie, because I don't think she's watched it. But if she were to watch it, I can guarantee that if I ask her who Kenneth Branagh is, she she probably won't know offhand. So I would be really interested to know like what someone would think of this movie if they don't have that context, or what someone would think of that device if they don't have that context. For me, it really worked. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like it, it, it gets the job done. I think, you know, I mean, it's, it's currently like number five for cinematography. And I think a lot of that is off of the back of it ble- being in black and white, which, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, the Oscars kind of has a thing for black and white films in general. That being said, I don't think it was the best use of black and white. If, you know, comparing to say even this year, Tragedy of Macbeth really oh, made yeah. use of the black and white and you know, as, as like a, as like a, element of of the cinematography itself and even going back a couple years to uh the lighthouse which was also in black and white and like really made use of like the stark contrast of colors here it's like they just slapped a you know a black and white filter on top of the film basically and didn't really do anything super interesting with with the color grading here well i don't know if i completely agree that they didn't do that much with the black and white. The, the thing that I specifically don't agree with is uh, the idea that they just slapped a black and white filter on it. Because if if watching Mank last year taught me anything, it's the importance of makeup in black and white films. And I think that like this movie 
if you if, if you took off that black and white filter and saw what this movie looked like in color, it would be garish. I'm sure it would not, it would look very strange. Like this is a movie that was really well put together, like specifically to be in black and white. And I'm honestly surprised that for that reason alone, it's not higher up on the makeup um, on the makeup list because. Like this movie looks mega smooth, and that's not something that's super. That's not something that's trivial to achieve in black and white. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, one other element that kind of occurred throughout was world of Van Morrison songs, um, which I believe that's like a you know it's a Northern Ireland band, so it's definitely the connection there. And again, this is up potentially up for best song for their Down to Joy. Um, Jeff, I know last year we talked a lot about your thoughts on best song. Um, in general, what do you, how how did they use Down to Joy here? I don't remember it. I'm it was, sure it was I think fine. I think I think it was the the opening song that they had like when they transitioned oh. from the yeah. Oh okay, that's like the best song in the movie then. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and then, uh, you know, one other kind of fun fact is apparently, you know, you know, obviously coming out of, you know, the pandemic and all that, it was you're still in the pandemic depending on your perspective. But when, when Hollywood was starting up again and they started filming things again, um, this apparently was one of the first films uh, back into production alongside the, uh, the Batman movie that's coming out in a couple of, of, of months, basically. And so apparently listening to the DTA podcast, a lot of the, the work here was in like the logistics of being the, one of the first films back to production basically so i think that's like a fun fun shout out here which you know i don't think really goes into production design per se but i think it definitely i think is is noteworthy for the film um you know i don't know if there's anything else about you want to you want you guys want to mention you know be it his directing or more about the the acting performances um but what are your thoughts on 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 those and even editing uh which is kind of like it's fairly high up for any any, any other thoughts on those categories um, I, I, I would really like, I wouldn't mind seeing like a Kieran Hines. I think it'd be cool if he got a, a nod for best supporting. Um, I think that's like what, what would matter to me most. Um, I can't really think of any other, like, like it was edited, like all right, but I wouldn't say like, I don't know. I was still kind of bored on it. <laughs> it's kind of a boring movie. Yeah, I will say I will say to its credit, it was uh, I think of these films, it might be the shortest one. I think it like I want to say it's like a minute, an hour fifty or something like that. Um, which compared to some of these other films, uh, King Richard, um, you know, definitely, uh, definitely was a bit of more of a snappier film to get through. Yeah, that that might help it kind of stick out more. Um, but yeah, th- I don't know. This is, the movie overall just feels like a like a solid movie, but like I I don't see it like like any category where it really wows me. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if like number two for best pictures is the that, that maybe is like maybe like really a five for me. me. Yeah, but yeah, Jeff. Well, I mean, like, I think that if it if if it gets a best picture director, actor, and actress nomination, like it deserves the nominations. But I think that they're all just like really good. They're not like outstanding. Um, I I would agree with. Uh, Pierre, that probably the strongest of these nominations. I don't know if this is actually what you're saying, Pierre. I hope I'm agreeing with you. But probably the strongest of these nominations is Kieran Hines for supporting actor. Um, I would love to see, like, I think the strongest performance in the film is Jude Hill, but he's a young boy and the Oscars doesn't like young boys, so that's okay. I would really like to see Jamie Dornan get nominated. I don't think he deserves it for this film, though. That would be more of a legacy award for his work on things like Fifty Shades of Grey. So, um, you know, award uh, Randall as director, like fine, fine if he gets a fine if he gets a nomination. Yeah, he's he's fine. I like him as a director. This is a movie that I liked. 
I don't think it's by any stretch of the imagination his best, and I think he's got something better still yet in him. Okay, sounds good. Um, we will. Th- okay, it, it, it sounds like there's not too much more to go over, so we'll hop into the next film, which I actually have not seen. Uh, Licorice Pizza. Um, so this one form is formerly known as Soggy Bottom before it finally came out. Um, but it's Licorice Pizza is a, is a director Paul Thomas Anderson or PTA. Uh, his his ninth film and follows a young act, child actor Gary Valentine who navigates life in the 1970s San Fernando Valley. Uh, Gary is played by Cooper Hoffman, son of longtime PTA collaborator. The late Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, in Cooper's acting debut. Opposite him is Elena Haim of the pop rock sister band, the Haim Sisters, uh, who PTA has directed several of their music videos, also in her acting debut. Um, also appearing in the film are Sean Penn, Tom Waits, and Bradley Cooper, among many others in roles that are inspired by various figures in the Hollywood industry at the time. Uh, Liquid Pizza had a limited release November 26th, breaking records for post-pandemic per theater average numbers, and is currently in a slow rollout Right, expanding expanding wider starting Christmas Day. Currently has a 3.9 on Letterbox out of 115,000 viewers. On Rotten Tomato, it has a 91% from critics, but the audiences gave it only a 68%. Uh, for Best Picture, it currently sits at number 5 on Gold Derby. Paul Thomas Anderson is currently number 5 for Best Director. Elena Hamm is outside the top 5, but at number 7 for Best Actress. Bradley Cooper is at number 6 for Supporting Actor. It is currently number 1 for Original Screenplay and is outside the top five at number six for best editing so again i have not seen this film so i have really not a lot of context for this one um so you know jeff why don't we start with you i know you guys have recently recorded an episode on licorice pizza has that come out yet by the time this episode comes out like this one of your podcast it probably will be out it'll probably be our most recent one but uh yeah that's not out yet Okay. Recording. Okay. So I mean, it'll be if, if not this week, then next week. Um, because your guys' liquid speech episode. So at the risk of asking you guys to repeat yourselves, um, you know, what what are your overall thoughts? I guess on liquid pizza. I think audiences overrated this at sixty eight percent. It's not very good. <laughs> uh, Pierre, do you agree? <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. Actually, it's uh my first Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and I was very uh, shocked at what I got. If that makes sense. Yeah, so I haven't seen Paul, a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson. I've only I've only seen There Will Be Blood. I think like in my ninth grade history class or something, my teacher like just threw, threw that on there um, for us to watch. And all I can remember is I'll drink your milkshake, basically. Jeff, have you seen a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson? I've seen quite a few. Uh, my first one was There Will Be Blood the year it came out. I, I like begged my parents for us to go an hour and a half to the like special indie theater that had it so that we could go see that. And that was like, that movie is incredible. And then uh, after that, my next Paul Thomas Anderson movie after that was Inherent Vice, which I saw in theater twice and like was just one of my favorite movies. It was probably my favorite movie of that year and like remains to this day, like definitely my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movies, probably my favorite like neo-noir movie at all. Uh, and then I've also seen The Master, which is incredible as well. Uh, Licorice Pizza was a huge letdown. This is I, similar to how I said with Belfast, this movie is like pure vibes. Like nothing really happens. It's just a lot of scenes that sort of fit together. And like, that's actually not a really harsh criticism. I don't mean that that way. I think that like, that's a type of movie that can work. Clearly it worked for me in Belfast. Uh, but with Licorice Pizza, there's like, The connective tissue is sparse at best. And honestly, like 
the chemistry between the main characters isn't that good. The characters themselves aren't that interesting to me. I mean, Alana Haim is her character playing, uh, also named Alana is by far the more interesting of the two. And she's got a very, like this movie could be entirely about her and I think it would be better. So what, so I, I guess like backtracking to Paul Thomas Anderson then, right? Like, so what would you say like the defining features of his filmography and his style are basically? Oh gosh, that's really hard for me to say. I think like he's got, I'd, I'd really have to watch a couple of his movies back to back. But the thing that stands out immediately for me is the, the editing and the cinematography. Like he's got a very distinct visual style. Kind of like Wes Anderson? Yes, but not in the same way. With a Wes Anderson film, like the moment you see a frame of a Wes Anderson film, you know it's Wes Anderson. With Paul Thomas Anderson, if you watch There Will Be Blood and then you watch Inherent Vice, it's not surprising at all that these are the same person. And if you then watch Licorice Pizza, it's like very obvious that this is the same person who directed Inherent Vice. Like you can tell just by the look of it. So do you think then, you know, and, and, and you know, so what, what did both of you think, I guess, about the directing for Paul? Like, do you think he deserves a directing nomination here? Or do you think this is just kind of like the Oscars playing favorites? Uh, honestly, I felt like, I mean, I think it was actually directed really well. It's just the script, like, the script insisted on me like hating the movie, but I feel like the directing actually like kept me interested in spite of the script. So I thought that was actually pretty impressive, and I, I wouldn't mind uh, I wouldn't mind a nomination. I don't know if I would put him in my top five if I had to go through and make a top five, but like yes, this was very very well directed, and I think that like in terms of directing, um, yeah. I can see him getting a nomination, and like not only that, I can see him deserving a nomination. That makes sense to me. Okay, though you know it's funny then, Pierre, that you mentioned even like the screenplay because this is again according to the Gold Derby the number one original screenplay. Um, it, and that maybe maybe do you think that's because you know it seems based on the synopsis I read that it's you know based on kind of like Hollywood figures. So it's you know again the Oscars kind of like being self self referential and liking movies about the movie industry and so on. Like, is that where like this this love for the screenplay is coming from, or is it something else? It's definitely part of it. Honestly, I couldn't give you an answer. I'm, I'm kind of confused at this choice too um the only thing i can like think of is like i i it like i don't know it, it feels very like hollywood and that like it, it feels kind of pretentious i guess i could so i could see why maybe like the oscars uh, might go for a screenplay like this but i don't know I, I i could not tell you what what value they really see from the screenplay that that i am missing jeff any thoughts the, the dialogue is funny it's not actively bad and like the scenes that play out are neat. They just don't fit together. So it's like, I definitely don't know why this is at number one, but like, sure, I can see it. Like, good dialogue can carry you a long way, and this has passable dialogue. All right, then. Well, you know, I don't want to take away too much from your guys' episode. I'll, I'll leave a link in the show notes uh, for your guys' thoughts on Liquor's Pizza so people can get like a little bit more of an in-depth uh, talk there. Again, I'm not very useful here because I haven't seen it yet. Um, I mean, it's probably going to get nominated, I think, at the rate it's going. Um, so I'll probably end up watching it at some point. Um, I'll just probably put it off as long as I can, potentially, um, while it's still in theaters, at least. So, you know, we'll move on uh, to another to another one from... Um, 
you know, uh, another coming of age story here that I ha- that I actually have seen. Um, this one is King Richard. Um, it is a biographical film directed by uh, Ronaldo Marcus Green, following the story of Richard Williams, father and coach of the legendary tennis players Venus and Serena Williams, who were uh, both producers on this film. Uh, the titular role is played by the Fresh Prince himself, Will Smith, uh, with. Aaron Jan- Janue um, Ellis as Orestine Price, um, the or Brandy, um, the mother of Venus and Serena, uh, who are played by Sunia Sidney and Demi Singleton. Um, John Bernthal also appears as Tenny Coke. Coach, uh, tennis coach Rick Macy. Um, it had its premiere at the 48th Telluride Film Festival and was released both in theaters and on HBO Max November 19th. It's currently available on VOD. Uh, currently has a 3.7 on Letterboxd with 72,000 viewers and 90% critics, 98 audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Currently for Best Picture, it is number six. Uh, Will Smith is currently the favorite for Best Actor. Um, Alanjane Ellis is best support- is fourth for Best Supporting Actress, currently third for Best Original Screenplay. And then Beyonce uh, is n- currently number two for Best Original Song with the credit song, Be Alive. Uh, so Jeff, we'll start with you this time. What were your thoughts on King Richard overall? Wait, so like she's nominated for a song that's not in the movie. <laughs> Come on, guys. Yeah, we've I won't been dwell here. on that too much, but like, I don't remember this song because I didn't see the song. I went to so I went to watch this movie, and when it was do- when it was done, I left because that's what you do when you're done seeing a movie is you leave. Unless it's so a Marvel I didn't movie. Hear, unless it's a Marvel movie. So like, I didn't hear "Be Alive" because it's not in the movie. Come on, Oscars. What are you doing? Anyway, uh, this movie's bad. Like, it's just not very good. Um, you had to cut me off talking about it before we started recording because I started getting like way into my thoughts and I, I'll come back to this. I, I promise I won't go into it right away. I'll let Pierre speak too. But like this movie just isn't very good. Like the best actor for Will Smith, that's a legacy award, right? This is by a long shot, not his best uh, performance he's ever given. I wouldn't even say it's among his best. What, what would you say is his best? Oh God. That's a really hard question because I don't know a lot of Will Smith. <laughs> I mean, this very well may be his best if you don't know what his other I stuff mean, is. Straight up, the best that I've seen him in, Men in Black. He's really good in that. Uh, yeah. Is he's not good in this. I mean, Men in Black isn't an Oscar type movie. I can see why that never got nominated. But like, he's really good in that. And like in this, he's sad, he talks with a weird accent, and he's not very good. Okay. Uh Pierre, have you seen King Richard? Uh, I saw a bit of it. Okay, what 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 which bit did you did you see? Uh the star. <laughs> like, like the first like twenty or so minutes, I think. I'm kinda surprised. I, I I mean from what I saw, I don't know where the movie goes. I mean I have a guess where the movie goes because the It's a like, biopic story. Biopics go. <laughs> yeah, so um I don't know. I, I from what I saw, I liked Will Smith's uh, performance. I don't know if it maybe gets tiring after because I saw it was it's a two and a half hour movie. I thought that was pretty surprising to see i mean i mean yeah it's definitely way too long i think um yeah i mean i mean i i put this my i I watched this one last night uh and you know honestly i kind of half watched it i mean i I had it on i was mostly paying attention but i definitely was on my phone for a good part of it just because of how long it was um and you know i put I, i put in my thoughts in the discord but um i think my main gripe with this isn't so much the like Will Smith as a character. I mean, we're, again, we'll come back to that. I think a, re- a big part of it is the fact that Venus and Serena 
you know, obviously as their producers and, you know, they credit a lot of their success to their dad. Um, and, and what happens in, in the end though is, and so they kind of lionize him to some degree. I think the problem with that though, is that because they give so much credit to their dad and they don't, they, they don't want to like portray, maybe they didn't want to portray some of the, his negative elements to it or, or downplay some of those perhaps. Um, he comes in as kind of like this force of nature, right? From the beginning, before, like before the movie even starts, he's already on this quote unquote plan to make them great or whatever. Right. And he never wavers from his dedication to the hashtag plan. Um, it kind of goes throughout the way, throughout the entire film, everyone telling him like some of these things you're doing, according to our expert opinion, having literally, done this for our careers and you're paying us to do this um basically you know or not paying since he got them to do it for free but in any case right like we're the experts here and then you know all of these things that he's saying that they're saying like to not do he's like no 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 i, I know what i'm doing um and in, in hindsight 2020 sir his his methodology worked out for his daughters um but like he's never really challenged and he and as a character for a narrative there's really no narrative pressure on him to really change. And he never really, as a character, never evolves over the course of the movie, which leaves it feeling really flat and really, really, like, really no stakes at all, right? Like, you know, obviously, they're going to become successful in the end. So it's kind of like a foregone conclusion. It's just like, there's no challenge. He doesn't grow as a character at all. Like, there's maybe, like, one bit where his wife, who, again, I, I will say, um, you know, Ellis definitely, I think, is uh, is probably, for me, the highlight of the film, potentially, um, as as the mother character. Um, she's, always, she's a scene stealer in every scene season, and she, she actually pushes him at one, in one scene. But even then, it doesn't really change fundamentally who Richard Williams actually ended up being as an individual. And so as a result, it feels very, again, very bland. There's no growth to the character at all, no change, no challenge. And that, that leaves the film falling flat for me. Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, that's basically, you, you said it better than I could have. That's exactly it. I wrote down, or I was thinking about um, some of the questions that you asked us about before um, before we got on and recorded today. And one of uh, one thing that, you know, you've already mentioned for uh, Belfast, but like the fate you, you have written down as one of your questions, the favorite part of the film. And for me in King Richard, that's the part very early on where uh, Richard Williams, their local, local gangsters are like um, hassling one of his daughters. So like in a moment of, in a moment of weakness, he's getting everything ready to drive out <clears throat> and kill the guy who's been hassling his daughters. And then he goes all the way to like, he, he finds out where this guy uh, is going to be. He drives out to that point and he's just about, he's, he's fighting with himself of like, do I actually do this? Do I actually go through with this in his car? And then someone comes by on the street and the guy gets shot in a drive-by shooting and he doesn't have to have a character arc because his character arc has been had for him. So he can now move on with the rest of his movie. And like, that's my favorite part of the movie, not for good reasons. That's the thing in the movie that I think is most emblematic of this movie is any time uh, Will Smith's character, Richard, has to make a difficult choice, someone else makes it for him, or he actually just doesn't make that choice, and it turns out that he was right. So, like, it's exactly what you said. There's no character growth, and I think that's my biggest problem with this movie. And as for Will Smith, as for Will Smith's performance, it's fine. There's nothing bad about it. It's just not special 
in yeah. any way. I mean, yeah, I'll, I appreciate that, you know, he did go through, he probably did the work to, like, learn what, you know, Richard Williams' actual accent was like and maybe, like, how he walked and whatever to, like, emulate him and so on, right? So, you know, I can appreciate the work that that probably went into into all of that. Um, but, yeah, again, it comes down to, I think, both the writing and, you know, I mean, so I did, I did golf for, you know, a number of years when I was younger. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of there are there's a, to some degree a lot of golf parents, right? Um, and and I imagine they're very similar to tennis parents uh, that they were portrayed in the film to some degree, right? And and you know, it's in particular like there's a parallel, you know, growing up where I learned a lot about Tiger Woods and kind of like the, what his what his dad did to to get him ready to pe- kind of break into this this sport that's you know predominantly a white sport, right? And I think maybe maybe that's what hidden to the I think an angle that they could have delved into a little bit more, which I think they tried to go here, right? Uh, uh, something about like you know the Williams sisters um, being and the Williams family being a black family trying to break into a predominantly white sport, and you know Richard Williams, you know, kind of feeling this pressure, and that's why maybe he did what he needed to do to prevent his daughters from burning out. And I can appreciate those elements to, you know, being a to being a parent, wanting the best for your kids, wanting them to succeed, and also carrying on, you know, realizing like, hey, if you become big like this, you are going to have to, you know, be a representative for a race in this sport, basically, right? Um, I mean, see it now, like what what Naomi Osaka goes through, right? Um, and so, you know, I can appreciate that. I don't think they gave enough credit to that, right? Um, and again, I think they they centralized so much around Rit, William, like Richard Williams's character, um, that you know there is a biopic in here that is about Venus and Serena, or a biopic in here about the mother, right? Um, who looking at her up, she actually was a tennis player of her own. Maybe not at the pro level, at the same successful pro level, but still, she was a tennis player. Like that's how she was able to coach her daughters, also. And I think that gets lost in kind of like the gravity well that is Will Smith, basically, right? I mean, that that might just be Will Smith, where he try well when he tries to play kind of like down to earth, you know, normal quote unquote normal folk characters. His superstardom kind of gets in the way of that to some degree. Whereas you know, where something like Men in Black, which is like out of this, literally out of this world or whatever, he's he's a better fit for those roles, I think. Well. Uh, yeah, actually, I think a lot of what you're saying, the more I think about this movie, personally, I think that this just has a really weak screenplay. Like, there's a good movie, there's a good story in the story they're telling. And most of the elements are at least fine, and I think they're held back mostly by the screenplay. Will Smith's acting in this, like I said, it's I'd never, I'd never want to say it's actively bad because it isn't. It's just not special. And I think the reason it's not special is that he's held back from the screen by the screenplay. He doesn't get to have a character arc because the screenplay robs him of that every single time he has the opportunity to do anything. Uh, Anjanue Ellis is fantastic in this, but she's in the movie for a grand total of maybe 20 minutes. Like all of the, like the, the elements of this movie are fine except the screenplay and the screenplay takes everything back. It just takes the air out of everything. Yeah, uh, I will say shout out to uh, to to um, John Berntel as Rick, Rick Macy. He was definitely a super fun character to see. Oh, he's see. fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah. I know you know. I, I know Pierre. You haven't seen a lot of, of a lot of a, a lot of it. You know, you said you just saw the first twenty minutes. So you know, I, I don't think we'll dwell on this too much more unless you had something else to add, uh, Jeff. I think we kind of like covered most of it. Mm. All right, uh, so uh, Pierre, have you seen Coda? I've seen most of it. 
All right, sounds good. Well, I think uh, I have a lot to say about Coda, so we'll I think we'll just move straight to that one then. Uh, Coda, sort for a child of deaf adults, and also a pun on the musical term Coda, um, is a film written and directed by C.N. Hitter about the life of one such child uh, of, of deaf adults, Ruby, played by Amelia Jones, who is torn between pursuing her love of music and helping her family's fishing business. Uh, it is a remake of a 2014 French film, La Famille Bellier, uh, directed by Eric Lardigau, with the remake being set in Gloucester, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, also starring in the film are Ruby's deaf family, played by deaf actors Troy Kotzer as her father, Daniel Durant as her brother, and Marley Matlin as her mother, uh, Matlin being the only deaf performer to have ever won an Oscar, as well as the youngest winner of Best Actress for her debut role in Children of a Lesser God. Uh, Coda debuted at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival a year ago and won both the U.S. Grand Jury and the U.S. Audience. Audience awards, as well as awards for for Cian Heather for uh, for directing, uh, and uh, also an award for ensemble cast, um, which I think also the SAG award nominations came out recently. And uh, Troy, uh, Daniel, and Marley um, were the first um, members uh, of a cast to be nominated for ensemble uh, who have disability. Um, so you know, it was picked up uh, after Sundance by twenty for twenty five million dollars by Apple, which is a record for Sundance, um, beating out Palm Springs from the year prior. And then director Sian Heather also signed a first look deal with Apple that year. Uh, it released on Apple TV Plus and had a limited theatrical run August 13th, 2021. Currently has a 3.9 on Letterboxd with 52,000 viewers, 96% critics, and 93% audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Currently, it is number seven for Best Picture. Uh, best Supporting Actress at number seven outside the top five is Marley Matlin. Uh, Tori Kotzer, the father, is number two for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, it's number three, and it is currently shortlisted uh, for Beyond the Sore for Best Original Song, uh, sung by actress Emilia Jones, again, over the over the credits. Um, so, uh, Pierre, we'll start with you. What are your thoughts, having seen most of CODA? Um, it's, like, a pretty enjoyable movie. Uh, I It feels kind of, like, I mean, of course, it's a coming-of-age movie. It's been done before. It, it feels a little predictable, like from the start, like the whole premise, but I, I, I guess I, it's, it's a cool look at, um, a certain style. Like I, I don't, I haven't seen many movies about fishers, um, especially when a coming of age film. So like, I, that was kind of cool, but, um, yeah, overall, I, it, it feels like a really solid movie, but again, it's not something that really sticks out to me in many ways. And it feels like it's at least from what I've seen and from what I know about the ending, it seems to just kind of, follow what you would generally expect from like the first act and what it establishes how far have you gotten in the film i think i'm like a an hour and like 15 minutes in okay okay uh jeff what about what are your thoughts um yeah i would agree that it's pretty predictable but like i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing uh this is by far the strongest of all four of these movies in my opinion like this movie is easily at least a strong eight from me probably higher um yeah i i really like this movie i watched it originally back in august and uh i i think i was kind of checked out for a lot of it so i didn't love it but then i rewatched it yesterday and was just wowed by just about everything so general thoughts i think this movie is pretty amazing yeah, I think, you know, the more I think about it, so last year, my favorite film of the best pictures, which I wish had won, uh, was Minari, right? And I feel there's a lot, there's a certain 
similarity here to that, right? It's, they're both stories about pursuing the American dream to some degree of families who are a little bit different than the norm of the community they live in. And maybe there's something about that that speaks to me. Um, but I think, frankly, the more I think about it, this is probably my favorite film Um potentially my favorite film of the best picture nominees uh, with the possible ex- exception of tick tick boom basically um but yeah i really i really really love this film the more i think about it i think um you know on the surface level of the description it feels very hallmarky right uh, right it's like you know oh it's a, it's the girl who comes from a family who can't hear and she falls in love with music and wants to pursue her love for music but she's torn between the two worlds oh uh, oh what will she ever do but I think it really just comes down to the execution is just really, really good here. Um, and again, I was listening to the um, to the director's cut podcast, you know, kind of in this past week or so, and there was some stuff that I heard about in there in the production that makes me really wish they had included. Uh, see, I, I would, really, I really would like to see C and Hater get a directing nomination just because of some of the things that, from what I've heard, they've had to do. So you know, obviously, C's not a deaf actor. She's not a deaf individual, but you know when you have you know three deaf actors in fairly significant roles in the film, that changes a lot of how you have to manage the logistics of your onset thing, and also of how you do the screenplay, right? Of having to not only incorporate essentially you're incorporating two languages, but then there's something about the um, something about the expressiveness of 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 deaf actors having to use the whole body. Like you can't use a close up shot in uh, in this in this film because you have to keep the hands in view in order to um, in order to convey emotion and for them to communicate, right? And the choice to like not you know have someone repeat what they're saying a lot of the time, but have it just be subtitled as if it were another language was like another part I really liked about this film. Like the more I think about it, the, it's kind of like a marriage between Minari and Sound of Metal last year, obviously, for obvious reasons with Sound of Metal, uh, which again is another film that's probably my one of my favorite films last year as well. So I think it was kind of like a foregone conclusion. I was really going to enjoy this one. <laughs> Yeah, um, I yeah. As you were mentioning that it's similar to Minari, I had that exact same thought yesterday too. It's a they're both movies about bilingual families where the one where our main character is unable, like speaks one language at home and is unable to interact with the rest of the world in that language because the rest of the world, well, her world doesn't doesn't use that language. So it's like a bilingual. Um, it, it's like a growing up bilingual, but like with the main language being the one you can't use in yeah. a way. Which I think it did a really good job of, I think, conveying the, like, they, they allude to this. So so in the film, there's like a character, Mr. V, who's the music teacher. And he kind of alludes to it, right? Right? When she kind of like mentions like, oh, she had been made fun of for, you know, having deaf voice growing up, right? Because she learned to talk funny because of how her parents, you know, uh, couldn't hear. Um, and he's, he's like, oh, you think you're the only one who grew up having a funny accent? And that really clicked for me that there was like, oh, there's a whole other element to this that's not just it's a universal story i think beyond just the the you know specifics to the deaf community but of being like you know i my like my family are my, my my parents immigrated here to the states and you know while you know they spoke english being from the philippines i know there's a lot of other first generation immigrant families who their kids speak english um but the parents have very limited english and so as a result the eldest child usually um ends up becoming a translator, running, kind of like doing taxes for their family at a very young age because they'll kind of become the caretaker for their family in a, in a, in a world they don't, in a, in a world that doesn't speak their language, right? And I feel like that was like a universal story there, I think, that extends beyond just, you know, the very obvious one of, of the deaf, fam- deaf family. 
Um, I, I just like, like, cause you mentioned Sound of Metal. I, I don't know why I just, it felt like Sound of Metal just, even though like it's all about, uh, like, you know, being deaf and struggling with that. I'm enjoying the community of it. For some reason, it felt more subtle to me in Sound of Metal. Like, just like it, I don't know how to say it, but it, it felt like in some ways that they were, this movie was trying to prove that it was like using um, deaf act. Like, wait, sorry, were they deaf actors? Yeah, so they are deaf yeah, actors. Were, yeah. Yeah, okay. Just to clarify. So, but it, it, it just felt like a little over, like, I don't, maybe it's just like the sailor thing, but like it felt like they were making the, the parents like more i don't know playful slash like um i think part of that might i think part of that might come from the original film so the original film which is a french film was a broadly a comedy right there was like this kind of like dramatic element but it was mostly a comedy and i think here it leans a little bit more into the drama element of it a little bit more so i think that maybe it has its roots in like the uh it has its roots in the uh in the comic comic uh, origin of it to some degree. Um, and also in the defense film, it's worth noting they did not have deaf actors play the deaf characters. Um, they had hearing actors. So they definitely like, made an effort here. Like Amelia Jones spent nine months learning how to do ASL for this role, um, which I think I really would like her to see a, a, a Best Actress nomination. I really loved her in here. Um, I think Tori Kotzer, um, the dad, was was really hilarious um, and, and also really heartfelt, especially toward the end of the film, um, where apparently on set he was like sneaking in some like uh, R-rated signs um, in his signing, basically. So they had like some like some sign masters on set to like basically tell him to cut it out, basically, so they could get like a clean take uh, for some of that. What did you think of the performances of 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 of, of the actors here? I mean, I thought I thought all the actors were done. I really liked the the teacher. I thought he was. I thought he brought like a very. Uh, he he seemed definitely seemed like the most charismatic character. But like in like, I'm not saying like everyone else was like bad. It's just I I feel like they were. Um, he 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 brought like some like I feel like uh contrast to the other characters, which is nice. Um, and yeah, I I think like. I mean, I can't tell. I I don't know if this is like a weird thing to say, but like, I I feel like the the ASL was just very expressive and like actually added a lot to to the movie in a way. Um, I like I don't. They just use like a lot of like the way I don't just the way they, there's a lot of passion, you know, and like the way they did it was just very interesting. So um, very authentic. Yeah, exactly. And I thought the chemistry, like the the family uh, chemistry, was. I guess really solid like it, it felt very like it, it felt like a very lived in family you know if that makes sense yeah and um, like the, and like the fact that like the brother has like a mini side plot of like his own romantic development right which kind of like just adds to his character um jeff what are you what what are your thoughts on the on the acting in here i i thought the acting was phenomenal like the the more actors i see represented in awards then the better but obviously troy kotsur is the one that like has the most uh, hype behind him, I would say. And I think, like, uh, for lack of a better term, he's the loudest performance. So, <laughs> like, uh, maybe obviously, I think he was... Yeah, he's the easiest one to... I come out of this movie and I always, like, immediately remember Troy Kotsur because he's, you know, he's so expressive. He's such a force on set. Like, uh, he's, he's a big performance. Uh, that said... I really do think Marley Matlin ought to be higher up there because uh, her performance 
um it's it's still it's still very expressive it's still got like a lot of uh power behind it but um even beyond that like i think she's able to hit a lot of the subtleties that a, a lot better that make that family feel lived in like uh she has a strained relationship with amelia jones in this but when i say strained it's not like it's like a really bad relationship it's really just strained in the way that you know teenagers teenage girls you know have have not necessarily always the best relationship with their mom at every point in their life right so and i think that uh she and amelia jones play that relationship really well and I think that she's able to bring a lot of the emotional weight to this movie that it needs in throughout the movie. Troy Kotsur gets a lot of very big emotional moments, but he's got like a couple of moments where Marley Matlin and her, the person who plays her brother, Daniel Durant, get a lot more of that spread throughout the movie. Yeah, I think yeah, definitely like Daniel's character is you know he he definitely has he can he definitely like realizes like the codependency of the family and like wants to like you know he's like hey like that scene you know again my, sorry sorry Pierre but you know you signed up for spoilers here um you know the the scene toward the end where he's like hey like you're getting like we're not the only ones who are benefiting from you being here. You're getting like the sense of power, the sense of, you know, feeling useful of being in the family when he like tells her she needs to go off to college basically. And then the mom, like, to your point, Jeff is like, you know, she, she has both the, the nuances of, you know, the mother daughter relationship, but then also the deaf hearing relationship, like with the broader community. And then also being a mother to her husband and all that. Um, and, you know, going back, you know, apparently the three of them who are on the ship, Troy, um, Daniel and Amelia, apparently they all actually learned how to actually operate a fishing boat uh, in order for, for this role, basically. Um, so, yeah, I mean that again, I, I really, I, I definitely would recommend checking out the director's cut podcast episode uh, on the, for Coda, because I think they had some really great behind, the scenes insights here um so you know again uh jeff uh beyond the sore played over the credits um sung by amelia jones this time at least it's someone in the film uh this yeah. time and you know music is a little bit more th thematically tied to this film right it would have been nice if that song had ended up being the one in the in the film um but I, I definitely appreciate like the use of music here especially as like an indie mm -hmm. film who probably didn't have like the unlimited budget to get all like the songs they would have wanted basically um right. so you know what did what were your thoughts on like the this music here and specifically the sound design I, i'm really sad this this didn't get nominated for sound in the same way that sound of metal did last year the sound design in this is brilliant i love the choices like i mean that probably plays just as much into uh directors seeing hater so like again i would also love to see her get nominated for directing here because i think um this being a movie about both a deaf family and music make means that sound is obviously going to be an integral part of the movie and music is going to be an integral part of the movie and i think the way she handles that is um, it's really enlightening at a lot of points. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of parts in this movie, uh, music related and otherwise, that just made certain things click to me. That like, th when I think about them, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But they're just things I never thought about before. And one of my favorite scenes in this movie is where she is giving her uh, end of year recital, and she comes up, she's doing her duet that she's been practicing this whole time. 
and you can't you can't hear it. They just cut out all the sound for it. And like that's such a brilliant first off, those are just great choices, but that's actually such a brilliant scene despite the fact that we never get to uh actually hear what that song sounds what that duet sounds like in its final form. I the sound is great. The sound is great in this movie. Because they because the pianist then being it's from their perspective, being deaf, look at everyone around them to see the audience's reaction. And apparently according to, you know, uh, you know, to to CN here in the in the interview, um, Marley Matlin said, Yeah, she's she has like Marley Matlin has kids who have hearings. She has coders of her own. She's been to a lot of recitals. And so it's like this is what you have to do at like recitals. So it's like a very authentic, I think, thing there. And another fun thing from the interview is that apparently they were going to do that kind of trick of like cutting out sound earlier in the film right like i think at the scene where like the brother goes to the bar and it's kind of from his perspective and so on they chose not to do it there in order for that later scene to have like more impact i think i think that was a good choice oh one last thing uh i remembered my favorite scene from this um this is another one of those scenes that was like actually enlightening to me because i just never thought about it i love the scene where her and her parents are arguing, not really arguing, but like having a discussion about uh, their daughter going off to a music college because Marley Matlin's character is initially not down with that idea at all. And Troy Kotzer's character is a lot more open to it, but like, you know, neither of them really understands it because they're not that interested in music being that they can't really experience a lot of it. And my favorite line in the whole movie is where Marley Matlin says to Troy Kotzer, what if she can't sing? which is just so mind-blowing to me because at this point in the movie, you know, we as the audience, we know that she can sing. She's been doing it the entire movie. But then I realized like, oh, they don't. They can't experience their daughter singing because that's not something, that's not an experience she's able to share with them. And like, it was just such a weird moment to me because it's like, what do you mean that she can't sing? Oh, that's what you mean. That makes sense. I think in that same conversation, my favorite line from the film is where like she's signing, like, you know, she's like she's a baby or whatever, right? And then the dad signs back, she's never been a baby, basically. Right. Kind of like again, going to like she's been forced to like kind of grow up faster than than she would have otherwise, right? So I don't know. I, I could just guess about this film for forever i think at this point so i'm going to be very sad when it probably doesn't win any oscars and when people when when cn hater doesn't get nominated and so on um but you know i would love to, to get at least even like minari just get one award this year it would be like would be my hope um in, in some form or another but yeah any other thoughts i mean i think you've covered it and also like i i hate to do this but i think our next episode is actually on coda so uh <laughs> we will link back to this episode and we'll give you the ability to do so as well. All right. Sounds good. Um, all right, then some closing thoughts then. Uh, all of these are coming of age stories, right? Um, so, you know, what do you think it is uh, for both of you um, about coming of age stories that make them such prime material for Oscars and what makes for a good coming of age story and what makes for one that kind of falls flat? Um, I just say, I guess coming of age is something everyone can relate to. You know, it, it's not, uh, it makes it makes uh, older people nostalgic. It, it's relatable to younger people. It's a, I, I guess it's like for the Academy, it's a relatively accessible style of movie that most people will enjoy in some way. So um, I, I'd say I'd say that's my guess. Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that, like you know, Mank, for example, obviously not a coming of age story, 
but also no one can relate to that. How many people do you know who have written Citizen Kane? Yeah. I know zero. But I know a lot of people who have come of age, right? Like everyone can relate to that. So yeah, it's it's infinitely relatable. Uh, it doesn't mean that every coming of age story is good, but it does mean that like just by nature of the genre, it's a it's a more accessible type of movie. Okay, and then what makes for a good one? What makes for one that kind of like falls down? Like, you know, I, here I'd say, we, we'd probably say that, you know, uh, Coda and to some degree Belfast kind of work as coming-of-age stories here, whereas King Richard and Licorice Pizza, from the sound of it, don't really work for you guys as coming-of-age stories. So what makes the two former films work and what makes the, the latter two not work for you? Um, for me, I would say that, like, Really, the characters are the most important thing in a coming-of-age story. In Coda, everyone has a character arc, and, like, you know, those character arcs are not only really well done, but they're, like, very clear. And it's the same thing. And in Belfast, I would actually say that the coming of that element of licorice pizza might work better than it works in Belfast. I think there are strong character arcs in Belfast, but, like, licorice pizza is carried heavily on the back of Alana Haim and her character arc, um, which is a little weird and I guess doesn't really fit into the coming-of-age story because she's not the one coming-of-age in a way. Yeah. But, like, I, I think that the characters are the most important part of a coming-of-age story, and that's why King Richard doesn't work. Because in King Richard, no one has a character arc, really, in my opinion. Um, so that movie is just, like a series of things that happened that I don't know why I should care because King Richard doesn't, or Richard Williams doesn't grow in a, as a person at all. And Venus and Serena do, I guess, but not that much because the movie's not about that. Pierre, any thoughts? Just looking at Licorice Pizza, I, I think the character arc was kind of reverted. Like the characters were worse off than when they started, in my opinion. It was like, very derivative and that's probably why because you know like i think coming of age just supposed to represent a huge period of growth for all all the characters in it and they're just looking for answers and stuff um and i think you know like with belfast i think you know we really got that i think the grandparents served as like a great um way for the kid to like just learn or have like some guidance in life and i think that's why that movie really worked that relationship um with uh with Coda, I th- I think it's just like, um, like I guess just, like just really strong characters. Like I think a lot like a lot of the characters change in that movie, right? It's a very active movie, if that makes sense. But yeah, Licorice Pizza was just kind of it. It was like I was stuck in like purgatory or something. Like it was just the same thing over and over again, and just kind of like why is why is nothing else happening? And so I think suspicious. It- it sounds like it's a combination of both having good characters who grow over time and then a screenplay and like a plot and so on that pushes them into situations that then make them grow, basically. Yeah. And I guess we've talked about these films at, at length. So, you know, are there any other non-Oscar films that you'd like to recommend people check out that you have been watching lately? Well, I have recently been watching through a lot of the movies for the Independent Spirit Awards because I recently became an Independent Spirit member. Uh, and I would just like to draw as much attention as I can to three big things, uh, three big things from that, and one from the BAFTAs. I'll, I'll keep it short. Drive by car, which potentially you will talk about at some point on this podcast. Anyway, uh, excellent. That's my favorite movie of last year. I cannot recommend it highly enough. 
uh, Pleasure. It's a movie about the porn industry by a Swedish director. It is awesome. One of my favorite movies I've watched for the spirits. Uh, Pig, really good return to form for, well, return to form is a horrible, it's like a horribly diminutive way of saying that Nicolas Cage is very good in this movie. It's not a return to form. He's never been bad in a movie. This is just an also a movie that is, that not wherein not only is Nicolas Cage really good, the movie is also really good. Um, so those three from the independent spirits for sure. And the only other one that I want to talk about specifically, and I, again, I'll keep it brief. Uh, there's a movie right now that is long listed for several BAFTAs called Boiling Point. It's a one shot movie. It's done actually in one shot, no camera trickery involved that takes place in a kitchen over the course of about an hour and a half on Christmas. Uh, it is behind drive my car and listening to Kenny G my third, my third favorite movie of last year. It's so good. It's infuriating in all the right ways. And if anyone listening to this has ever worked in a kitchen, it's exactly that experience, but put to film. I have never seen anything like it. Uh, Boiling Point is like a five-star movie for me. You had my attention at one shot film. Uh, all right. And then any films coming up in 2022 uh, that you guys are excited for? I know you guys both said you're big uh, blockbuster superhero films, but anything in general, Oscar related or otherwise? Uh, yeah, well, the superhero movies, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. This is a cool year for Marvel, and I was really disappointed in them last year. So if they can pull off this year, I'll be happy again. Um, but yeah, other than that, I don't know. I think Top Gun Maverick will be cool just because, like, it was supposed to release, like, two years ago, and it didn't. So, like, it'll be cool to see, like, it, it actually come out. Um, not that, like, that's ever been good for me. I think last time I saw a movie that happened to was with, what, New Mutants? And like that wasn't that great. So, uh, oh, Av- Avatar, Avatar Two is coming out this year. It's hard to believe, but that's probably the movie I'm most looking forward to. I'm really, I love. I mean, James Cameron has never missed, in my opinion. So, I think, and it's been what he's technically been thinking like about twelve years or something movie. like that for twelve years. Yeah, so just think like all the movie making potential he could have done in uh, twelve years. It's crazy. Yeah. All right, and then Jeff, any any for you? I'm excited about all the same ones that Pierre is excited about, but I'm going to say one thing that has not yet been getting the attention I really want it to. Uh, Darren Aronofsky is making a movie that I think is supposed to come out this year. It's not, it doesn't, hasn't been, there hasn't been an official date or even a release window announced other than tentatively 2022. He's making a movie with Brendan Fraser called The Whale. It's apparently done. It's in post-production, so it's going to come out, but it sounds awesome and i really really want to see it it's about a like 600 pound man trying to reconnect with his daughter and apparently the play is batshit insane and the movie might be as well i'm very excited for it i'm so sorry if you have to bleep anything. sounds very on brand for aronofsky to some degree um all right uh anything you guys want to plug again thanks for coming on the show anything you guys want to plug social media links where we can listen to classic movie lives and can, with kendrick I don't know exactly when this episode is going to come out, but uh, on Kicking It With Kendrick, we have a really exciting slate of guests lined up that I actually don't know if I've even told Pierre all the guests we're getting, but we've got some uh, we've got some really cool episodes coming up and we are 
just we're at the point where we're now talking about uh, with kicking it with Kendrick. We've been going through her and Anna Kendrick's entire career, and she has a lot of supporting roles. We're starting to get into the parts where she's getting either beefier supporting roles or main actress roles, which is really nice because there have been a lot of episodes where we just have not had a lot to talk about. But we just did Up in the Air, and we're about to do uh, y- your episode with where we did The Accountant should be out now. And after that, we've got some really exciting episodes coming up. You can find all those on Spotify, and you can find Classic Movies Live on Spotify, too. I think we're about to do Coda. By the time this comes out, the newest episode hopefully should be Licorice Pizza. It might be about to come out. And you can follow us on Twitter. Yeah, links to all of that will be in the show notes. Uh, Jeff and Pierre, as always, it's a pleasure to have you guys on. Uh, thanks so much for for coming on to the Oscars Death Days podcast, and good luck with your races this year. At least for you, Jeff, which I think is almost done at this point. At this point, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll tell you the important ones you need to see, Pierre, for sure. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Catch you guys next time. Thanks again to Jeff and Pierre for joining me as always. Always a pleasure to have you guys on. A reminder, you can check out their podcast, Classic Movie Lives and Kicking It With Kendrick, on the same feed available on Spotify. Uh, they had some delays getting their Licorice Pizza episode that they mentioned out, but uh, you should sub to them uh, to be able to catch it when it drops next week, and I believe code of the week after that. Uh, my episode with them for The Accountant, I believe, comes out tomorrow as of this episode releasing uh, on Friday, um, so you can listen to that in the meantime. A link to their Twitters and Letterboxd accounts will be in the show notes as well. Now, next week on our final episode before nominations, like I mentioned at the top of the show, we will be having ContraZoom Pod come on to talk about what we think will be nominated to help you fill out your predictions in the contest that I'm hosting. Uh, again, the Google form is available in the show notes and now accepting entries. Uh, you can enter now, or if you need help listening, to, uh, you can listen to next week's episode for some advice on who's, you know, uh, think some things to keep in mind, though you should be warned that we both have some very hot takes and we do our best to manifest some more alt-kilter nominations into existence, so uh, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, in any case, that wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how your Death Race is going over on Twitter at OscarsDRaceCast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at zemo.com. Make sure so you subscribe to the show on your podcast service of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and leave us a review, or if you can just share it with a friend who loves movies, that's super helpful. If you want to directly contribute financially, you can do so over on Patreon, linked in the show notes. Um, also linked alongside that Google uh, that Google form contest will be my Leatherbox account under the username NinjaBoy, Boy than I. Uh, be sure to check out the Oscar Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits and the Oscars Death Race Academy of Death Racers Discord, as well as the community websites of uh, AODR.net uh, and, and OscarsDeathRace.com. Uh, music is provided by Kevin MacLeod. His stuff is at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing production by Ninsboy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees or die trying. Mm-hmm.